It's good to be with you this morning in the Lord's house. Um, it has been a fantastic week and weekend around here already, um, and we would appreciate your continued prayers this morning for the kids that are here for Reverb this morning and ongoing from this point forward. Um, I will be selfish and say we have three of them from our family here this morning, so please be praying hard for the kids. Um, there is great stuff going on, I know, already, and we just pray that God would continue to work in the hearts and the lives of the, the young people that are here this morning. We're uh, in our second week this, this morning of our Revive series. We're very simple here at Tomball Bible Church. We do Revive, Reverb, you know, anything with the REV somewhere in there. So, but when we hear, particularly I think in this, this part of the country, that, that word revival, it has maybe different connotations to different people. You know, an image probably comes to mind. Skeet talked about that a little bit last week. But this morning as we get started, I want to start where we left off last week with this, this definition of what revival is that we are talking about here uh, this morning and we will again next Sunday morning as well. Revival is really the breathing of new life into something that is faded or uh, is fading or is faded in its vitality. Let me say that again because I messed it up pretty good the first time. Revival is the breathing of new life into something that is fading or has faded in its vitality. More specifically for our discussion this morning, this brings uh, this bringing of new life is really an awakening of our affection for Jesus Christ is what we're talking about. So it's it's not some... We're not after some big group hug and something, you know, that happens because we're all gathered in the same place. But what we're after is God getting a hold of each one of our lives right where we are this morning and taking us from this point forward in the direction that he wants us to go as individuals. If that happens with 10% of what is seated in this room this morning, if God really gets a hold of the lives of, of one out of every ten of us in here this morning, we will see Tomball Bible Church be a completely different place. There's a little college in Kentucky. It was founded in 1890 as the Kentucky Holiness School. Interesting name. Several years after its founding, it changed its name to Asbury College, and there is now a seminary associated with Asbury as well. But Asbury has been known for a number of things over the years. Most importantly, it has been a place that over the years, since 1890, has begun revival on its campus three times spreading across the nation from this little college in Kentucky. February 1905, February 1908, February 1921, February 1950, March 1958, February 1970, March 1992, and February of 2006, all were times where the campus of Asbury College and Seminary had been marked by incredible revival. That's eight different instances. In two cases, it literally changed the nation for a time. 
The revival that took place there in 1970 swept across college campuses all across the country and was an incredible awakening of Christians all throughout this nation. It also led to a great missionary surge following that time. There's eight different times that Asbury has been grabbed by the Holy Spirit, seven of which had nothing to do with a planned revival time on campus. Seven times out of the eight, what happened on the campus of Asbury College was a couple guys got together, they were praying with each other, one guy stepped up and said, I know I need to be different. I think that there's more out there for me in my life with Christ than I am living right now. And I want you guys who are with me to pray that God would revive my spirit, would revive my walk with Christ. It spread from there to the guys who are with him, to the rest of the campus, to the state, to the region, and across the country in several instances. Interesting, it all happened in February, too. Let's see, what month are we in? Maybe there's a good, maybe there's a sign there, I don't know. Dwight Moody is a, somewhat of a hero of mine, being a Chicago boy, and that's where his Moody Bible Institute is. And he has a great quote along the same lines with all of this. In 19, or in 1871, following the great Chicago fire, Moody went and he was looking at the burned out remnants of what used to be the downtown city of Chicago. And God got a hold of his heart that day. He was already a great Bible teacher. He had literally thousands of kids gathering every Saturday morning for Sunday school on Saturday. I'm not sure how that all worked, but, you know, worked for them. He looked at the remnants of what used to be the city of Chicago, and God got a hold of his heart that day. And he realized that a lot of what he was doing was really what he had practiced to do. What he was doing with the kids of the city was really more about um, just trying to be a good teacher and leader. And Moody said this, The world has yet to see what Almighty God can do, or can and will do with, for, through, in, and by a man, wholly and fully yielded to him and to God's service. And by God's grace, I will be that man. He went on from there and claimed a piece of land in downtown Chicago where he has built a, where he built a college and a church, and it still exists to this day, and sends out more, has sent out per capita more missionaries to the rest of the world than any other Christian college campus. Started with Moody, already a man of God, saying, I think there's more for me. And I need to be fully, completely, and wholly devoted to him. And if I do, the world has yet to see what can happen from someone like that. But as we think about that, that's what I think this whole revive thing is about. It's, it's getting to that point in our own lives from wherever we are today and saying, you know, God has more in store for me. But as we look at that this morning, I want to present to you four things that can get in the way, that can keep us from being revived. This morning, there are more than four, but we're just going to camp on four this morning. The first one is this. The first one is when it comes to our relationship with God and being revived, we're trying to do it ourselves. I remember as a teenager um, going to 
to uh, lifeguard training, and along with that was CPR training, and you learned how to do the Heimlich maneuver. So in case somebody was drowning, I guess you could Heimlich. I'm not sure how that all worked, but I recall it distinctly because it was a little bit different, those two pieces in this whole Red Cross training thing, because the guy that was the instructor said, now here's the deal, folks. If you are choking, then you need the Heimlich maneuver. If someone is there with you, you know, they wrap their arms around, they put your, you know, your hands in a fist, and I'm, you know, the doctor can correct me on this later, um, and, and, you know, you pull real hard and whatever it is, you know, you know, comes flying out, hits somebody in the eye across the room, and it's really cool, and it saves their life all at the same time. If they have stopped breathing and their heart has stopped, they need something more than that. They need CPR. They need air blown back into their lungs, they need their heart to be mechanically or, you know, physically massaged, started again at that point in time. There's a difference between those two things. If you are alone and by yourself and something, you know, you swallow your bubble gum, you actually have a shot at the Heimlich maneuver on your own. And they taught us how, you know, you take a chair like this, you turn the chair sideways so there's like a pointy part on it, and you get your, you know, right below your xiphoid process, right on the edge of that chair, and you hit it real hard, you might have a chance at blowing that thing out of your windpipe. If you need CPR, you're on, you know, and you're by yourself, you're dead, basically, is what it comes down to. You cannot do that on your own. And for us, this, this whole thing about being revived, this, this wanting God to do something with our lives, it's so many times we're trying to do CPR on ourselves. And as much as we want to do that, as much as we want the result of it, it doesn't work. And, and some of the ways we try and do this, you know, self-CPR is kind of like this. It's, you know, we say, well, if we just serve a little bit more, whether it's in church or, you know, with the the widow lady next door, or whatever it is, you know, we try and serve a little bit more, maybe God will look favorably on me, and therefore I will be somewhat revived. Or we can give a little bit more, you throw a little bit more in the offering plate, or into the Salvation Army bucket at Christmas time, whatever it is. We attend more things. We go on a mission trip. It's Christmas time, so we help out with the Angel Tree Project, or one of the other projects that's going on here at Tomball Bible. We're involved in food share. Or maybe we do something big. Last week, Skeet shared a story from Acts chapter 19 about the seven sons of Sceva, who was a priest. And they were thinking that they could do something big. And they had observed the fact that Paul was casting out demons from demon-possessed people in the name of Jesus Christ. They found someone demon-possessed. Apparently, that was not so hard to do in this town, in this day, when they lived. And they brought him in, and these seven sons of the priests looked at him and said, in the name of this Jesus that Paul preaches, we command you to come out. And if you remember, if you were here last week, remember the story, the demon from inside this man looks at him and says, Jesus we know, Paul we've heard about, you we got no idea. And the demon-possessed man turned on the seven sons of the priest, beat them, physically till they were bleeding and stripped them naked and sent them out running away to cry. They were trying to do something that they didn't have the power to do. And I'm telling you here this morning, one of the things that gets in the way of us being revived is when we look and we say, we can do this on our own. All we need to do is try a little bit harder. 
And that's not a biblical principle. Now, there is nothing wrong with doing any of the things that I listed before. We want you to serve and to give and to be involved with the different ministries of the church. And God bless all you people that opened up your houses to a bunch of teenagers that you've never seen before this weekend. If you did, thank you so much. Or who have been driving people around or doing whatever it is that made Reverb work this weekend. Because it's taken an army of people to do that. Those are all good things. But what I want you to realize today is the truth of John 10.10. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that you may have life, and you may have it abundantly. Or in other translations, that you may have it to the full. And Jesus says, when you want to be revived, when you want to have all the life that you can get, it's because he came. It's not because you can do something on your own. We need Jesus Christ in order to have this full, abundant, revived life. Jesus is the source of life, and he is the source of being revived. In James 4, chapter 2, it says, We do not have because we do not ask. So I'm telling you here this morning that if Jesus is the source of life, and in James it says, If we ask, we shall get, maybe that's where we should start this morning. Instead of trying to do it on our own, we should all look to our own selves today and say, I can't do this by myself. Jesus, I need you to come in and revive me. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 says this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened Or which of you, if his sons asked him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, you would give him a serpent? serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? You know, there's there's no secret words or secret formulas to, to being revived, but the secret is that revival comes from God and not from something we can produce in and of ourselves. And God wants to give us the good gifts that he talks about. God wants us to have life abundantly, and he's eager to give when we're eager to ask. He showed that when Jesus Christ gave up his own life for us. So, The first thing that's keeping people from being revived, keeping us from being revived, is that we're trying to do it ourselves. I would say that that the second thing I want to dwell on for a minute this morning is that sometimes we just have obstructions in our lives that keep us from having what God wants to give us. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2 says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that he cannot save, or his ear dull, that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You know, a lot of times we think that that the sin that we have in our life is something that's personal to us and it's hidden from other people, but it's not hidden from God. And although nothing that we ever do can separate us from the love of God, nothing can ever take our salvation from us when our lives are characterized by sin, and I would say particularly habitual sin, it can cause a separation between us and God. 
Just like if you're a parent, you love your kids always. When they're acting like idiots, you don't necessarily like them. And I think the same thing applies with God. Our iniquities, our sins, cause a separation between us and God. And until that is dealt with, he, does, he cannot, he does not reach his hand to do the things that we would want him to do. 1 Peter 3.7 goes a little more personal and says this, Husbands need to show their wives understanding and honor, and here's the quote from 1 Peter 3.7, so that your prayers may not be hindered. If you're sitting out here this morning, husbands, this was a special word to you, and it said, and you are hoping that God answers your prayers, starts to revive you and therefore your family, and you have not been honoring to your wife and understanding to your wife, it says your prayers are going to be hindered. One of my favorite pastors I listen to online some and uh, have read a number of his things is Mark Driscoll. And he says this, that it's laughable that men in America today think that they can act disrespectfully to their wives with their actions and their attitudes and their words, and that they still have some expectation that God is going to answer their prayers. God's real clear on that. The things that we do do not keep him from loving us. They do not affect our salvation, but they do affect our relationship. And so if you want to be revived this morning, I am telling you that the Bible says that you need to make sure that there is not that unconfessed sin in your life that's going to cause a hindrance between you and God. I think this morning we need to understand where we are and where we want to be. Luke chapter 15, verses 17 through 24 says this. It's the story of the prodigal son. We all know the story of the prodigal son, or most of us do, I hope. If you don't, it's a story of a man that has, a rich man that has two children, an older son and a younger son. At one point in time, the younger son comes to his dad and says, Dad, I want my share of the inheritance so I can use it the way I want it. The dad gives him his share of the inheritance. The prodigal son goes off. He spends it on wild living and all kinds of crazy stuff. And then one day he wakes up in a field full of pigs. And that's where we pick this up in Luke 15, verses 17 to 24. It says, But he came to himself, and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise, I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I think the attitude that the prodigal son expresses here, the younger son expresses here, is so key in this whole thing of of what is our relationship going to be like with God when he says, I realize where I'm at. I realize where my sin is. I realize what I really want from life and And I need to do something about this today. I need to ask for God's forgiveness. That's what the son says to the, when he wakes up, it says he comes to his senses. Um, He came to himself and he says, I need to go and do this. And I need to tell my dad that I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against him. He wanted to remove that obstacle. And he said, my, my desire, his desire was not that that relationship should be exactly as it was the day before he left home, the day before he asked for an inheritance. That's not what he thinks. He says, I'd just like to be one of the servants on my dad's place. I'll sleep in the barn. But that's better than where I'm at. 
Continue on with the story in verse 20. It says, And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and he ran to embrace him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But listen to what the father says, because this is how God treats us when we go back to him and we say, God, I need to be revived, and I know I've been doing wrong things in my life. God, revive me today. Please forgive me. And the father said, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my, for this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. See, God is waiting for us to come to him and say, God, forgive me. Revive me. Make me new again. And it's just like he had never left home at that point in time. He gave him the best of the best back again. So we try to do things by ourselves to win God's favor. We have sin in our life that causes a huge gap between us and God. A third thing also comes. And this one's a little bit different. You know, in the Christian life, we have both mountaintop experiences and, and it's sometimes we go through some really deep valleys. There's death, there's discouragement, there's loss of a job, there's all these other things. Or, or one of the things happening right now is a lot of our students are having just incredible mountaintop experiences this weekend where they're just having the love of God and the word of God and the worship of God poured into them for an extended period of time, and it's taken them to that mountaintop where they want to see God, and they want to be all that God wants them to be. They want to be revived and all those things. But a lot of times, both the mountaintops and the deep valleys are where we move away from God. In about 500 B.C., there was a Greek philosopher, uh, Heraclitus, And he introduced this idea. He said, if you're not growing, then you're dying. If you're not growing, then you're dying. And I think the two places where we stop growing most as Christians are when we've had some incredible mountaintop experience and we say that's going to hold us for a while or for the rest of our lives. Or when we find ourselves in a deep valley and we say, I think God has forgotten about me. And we just stop looking for God. But think about this. What if Abraham, Noah, Moses, Elijah, David, or even Jesus Christ himself, they had some incredible mountaintop experiences. They also had some incredible hard times and valleys. What if these guys had stopped when they were in that valley, in that desert? What if Abraham would have turned to God and said, you know, I really like where I am, God, and I'm not going to leave my home and go someplace that I don't know? What if Noah would have quit building the ark when his neighbors started mocking him? And, or what if he, after nine months floating around with a bunch of animals, said, I just had enough of this. I'm going to go for a swim and never come back. What if Moses would have decided, you know, that growing up in Egypt thing was okay, but I don't think I want to go back there. It's pretty good here in Midian with a bunch of sheep 
And I kind of like my wife and my kids and my father-in-law. I think I'll just stay here and ignore that burning bush thing. What if Elijah had just pitched his tent permanently by the side of the river after he had defeated the after God had defeated the prophets of Baal and he was in that that incredible lull after God has done something great in his life and he felt all alone? What if he had just stayed by the river and said, "You know what? This isn't so bad. I'll just stay here." What if David had just said, "I think I'm going to stay with the sheep." out here in the field when he was just a boy, or when he was running away from the king as a young man and said, you know what, this isn't worth it. I'm just going to get out of here and just pitch this whole anointed one of God thing. What if Jesus, after 40 days of being in the wilderness without anything to eat or drink, had said to Satan when he was tempted, you know what, bread would be pretty good right now. I could use a good sandwich. All these guys... The patriarchs of the Bible, even Jesus Christ himself, had some incredibly low times. But in those times, they, can, they continued on. They didn't give up. They didn't quit. Now, that sounds maybe pretty simplistic, and maybe it is. But, but the other part of that equation is all these guys also had some incredible great times. And when they got to those times, they didn't retire They didn't have that great spiritual experience of their life or the second one or the third one or the fourth one and just say, that was great, I've had a great life, I'm done. I'm going to sit back and enjoy it. A number of years ago, my parents moved into a retirement apartment. Some of the greatest people around. And my parents are right dead in the middle of that World War II generation. And, and at the Covenant Village where they live, every Thursday they had chapel there. And after my folks had moved in, they'd been there for a few weeks and stuff. And, and I got a call at my office, and it was the, the guy that runs the chapel program at Covenant Village where they were living. And he said, you know, we like to have a variety of people come in and talk to the people that live here. Would you be willing to come and share a chapel service with us? Sure. I'm always up for sharing good stories, and, you know, for the most part, old people like me. So that was all good. And there was lunch, you know. But So I went, and right about that time, Tom Brokaw had written his book about the greatest generation, talking about that World War II generation, all that they had done, you know, to literally save the world from, you know, tyranny and all the other things, all the great accomplishments of that generation. I realized that that's who I was going to speak to there. And so I got there, and I, I celebrated who these folks were, the generation that they were, and, and the generation that had sent so many missionaries and the, you know, the great missionary awakenings throughout the world from the 50s and the 60s and, and all the other great things that had come from this generation of people. And then I got towards the end, and it struck me, I should, I should ask these folks for something, because they were all sitting nice like you guys are sitting. I said, I should, I should ask them to do something. And I said, you know, I'm a youth pastor here in town, and I have a whole bunch of kids in my youth group that could really use some air support, just like D-Day. And I went into this whole thing about how on D-Day the guys stormed the beaches and stuff because they had some air cover and all these different things and stuff. And I said, what I'd like to ask all you guys to do is this. Start praying for your grandkids. If you don't have grandkids, start praying for the kids in my youth group. 
that God would raise them up as a generation that would take this world by storm and that they would do as believers what the great generation did as warriors. Wrapped up real good, we prayed at the end, and I was standing in the front talking to my parents, and this crowd of people started to come up, one at a time. I thought, that's nice, they all want to shake my hand, tell me, you know, good job, young man, kind of thing, you know. And every single one of them pretty much said the same thing. So we have people come and do chapel with us all the time. They're always real gracious, they're always real nice, most of the time they bring a nice word from God's word. Nobody's ever asked us to do anything before. Nobody's ever said, here's a project for you folks. And they were all like, you know, this, we're this great generation, God, and they people have given up on us. And I would also say that a lot of times, as people go through their Christian life and, and great things happen in their lives, they kind of give up on themselves as well and just say, I have accomplished something, I may even have accomplished much, and so I'm just going to stop. And that is so contrary to Scripture. You know, the great patriarch of the Old Testament, the, the, the model of, of who Christ was going to be as a deliverer of his people, Moses, is one of my favorite characters of the Old Testament. And Deuteronomy chapter 34 says this. It's the end of Moses' life. You know, he grew up 40 years in the land of Egypt. He lived in Midian for 40 years where he was a shepherd, and now he's been back with the people of Israel. He's led them out of Egypt. They've been wandering the wilderness for 40 years, and they're finally to that point that they're going to enter the promised land. But because Moses wasn't perfect himself, he had messed up along the way, and he had sinned, he had taken credit for something God was going to do himself. And so God said, because of that, you're not going to enter the promised land. I'm going to let you see it but I'm not going to let you enter in. So in Deuteronomy chapter 34, it says this, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab and Mount Nebo. I'm going to skip down. And the Lord said to him, I'm going to give you all that, that I promised to Isaac and Jacob and Abraham and to your offspring. And Moses, you're not going to get to go into the land, but I'm going to give it to uh, you this to your people this day. It says that on the top of this Mount Nebo, Moses died. There's actually some really interesting stuff later about what happened to Moses' body, about where it was wrestled amongst Satan and angels and stuff. And it says he was buried there, and nobody knows where it is. But then in verse 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 34, it says this, And Moses was 120 years old when he died, but his eye was never undimmed, and his vigor never unabated. His whole life, he went from, from the time that he met with God at that burning bush and pressed on, crossing the Red Sea, seeing God do miracle after miracle after miracle, and none of that was good enough for him. And he said, I'm going to keep on going until the end. And I think a lot of times we're, we're not being revived because we've either hit one of those incredible mountaintop experiences or, or we've, we've been through one of those valleys and, and we just feel so alone. And you know, the mountaintops make you feel alone too. But when we're there, that's when God is going to work in our lives and that's when God can revive us.
the fourth thing that God, or that gets in the way of us being revived, is a little more complicated. See, because what we've been talking about here with, with this being revived means that we were once alive in the first place. Now, everybody sitting here is breathing, so we know you're alive, but that's not what this biblical principle is talking about. It's talking about where you are in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, there's probably some people sitting out here this morning who have never established, have never experienced a personal relationship with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so when I'm talking about being revived, you can't be revived because you were never alive. Jesus said, again, in Mark 10.10, I've come that you may have life and you may have it abundantly. That life comes from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and it is eternal life. It goes on and on forever. The good news is that that's an easy thing to fix. The Bible says this, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. The Bible says that if you are here this morning and you ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior today, he will do that and you will be alive. And that's being alive the first time is even better than being revived. Let me tell you a little story about another friend of mine. I have a friend, his name's Tim Brubaker. Tim and his wife Jessica... uh, were, were students at Moody Bible Institute and then at Trinity uh, Seminary. And for the time that they were there, they were interns in, working with my youth ministry and were in the Chicago area. They always wanted to be missionaries, both of them. Jessica had grown up um, in a missionary family. Tim had grown up, and since he was a small little guy, wanted to be a missionary. They went to college, they went to seminary, they were ready to go out on the mission field. The church that we were in sent them out in the mission field. They went to Rwanda. They're in Rwanda now. They've been there for a number of years, about seven years now almost. And they run a number of ministries there. But one of the things that Tim is most involved with is a seminary that teaches local pastors in the country of Rwanda because most of them have had no formal training whatsoever. It's very much like what happens in in Uganda, I think, only probably on a a smaller level, even with some people that that have even less knowledge when they start. And a lot of these guys in Tim's uh, ministry, it's a two-year program, and in order to get to uh, where their, their little seminary and college is, they take 32 new students at the beginning of each year. And most of the time, these guys that are coming, they have to to either walk literally hundreds of miles, and some of them, if they're lucky, have a bicycle. Kind of like Wicked Witch of the West in, you know, uh, or East, whatever it is, in uh, Wizard of Oz bicycle, you know, not some nice mountain bike. And these guys will ride, like, for a month on a rickety old bicycle to get there to be there. I take 32 new students at the beginning of each year. And the interesting thing is that after the first semester that these guys are there and they've they've literally given up everything they've left their families for a time they're riding their bicycle or walking hundreds of miles or if they're really really lucky they may find somebody with a truck who's willing to let them stand up in the back until they get there and particularly in rwanda it is a life risking experience because at any given time in rwanda one of two 
sets of people are in control of the country, and if you're not a member of that tribe, your life is literally at danger. And if you're trying to do something like become a pastor, then your life is really in danger because they think you're going to be a leader in your community. So these guys are coming from all over the country. Out of the 32 guys that start each year, they have found in the six years that they have been doing this, at least six have become believers within the first semester. And you say, how, how come you're not a believer, but you're going to seminary? Well, they, they have seen what God is doing. They have been around things that God is doing, these men, and they think it's a great thing, but they have never taken that opportunity themselves to ask God to be their own personal Savior. And once they've had this explained to them so that they can explain it to others, these guys come and they say, you know what? I still want to be a pastor, but I just realized right now, I didn't even know that I wasn't a believer before I got here. So there, what I'm saying to you is, is that there's, there's, no, there's no shame in this. There's no, you know, nothing wrong if you're sitting here this morning and you say, I'm not sure I do know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. All you need to do is ask him to be that this morning, and he will. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 says this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And you know, over the years, scores of people have believed that they, that they have done something and earned God's favor instead of just asking to inherit eternal life that's been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. That passage goes on, Matthew 7, in verses 21 through 23, and says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, uh, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. God says this is important stuff. It's simple but important. The truth is, there's nothing that you need to do except for ask for God's forgiveness and eternal life, and he will give it. That passage thankfully goes on and says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, but it did not fall, because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew against and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And so what I'm saying to you this morning is, we're here this morning, and you have a chance to... Refresh your house on the rock to make sure that you're not just trying to please God by the way you're living your life. That you're not sitting here this morning and you have sin in your life that's, har- that's harming your relationship with God. That you're not, you're not sitting here this morning and just hoping for the best but that you can be here this morning and you can say, God, I, I want my relationship with you to be better. 
I want to be revived here this morning. I want to be like Moses, who lives his life all the way through to the very end. And my eyes don't dim and my, my strength doesn't diminish and, and I'm doing all that I can with your help being your man or your woman of God. And I want to be revived today. And not just today, but tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. I don't want just to have another little mountaintop experience, but I want it to be continuing on and I want to keep on going. Don't let things get in the way of being revived. The four things I talked about this morning have pretty easy solutions, and they all start with just giving in to God and saying, God, you need to change me. I can't do it myself. So take a hold of my life. Change me. Make me. Mold me into the person that you want me to be, God. I'm willing to be whatever that is. Whether you're on a mountaintop this morning or in a valley or somewhere in between, God has another step in front of you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you this morning for your word, and I pray there would be an encouragement to each one of us. I pray, Father God, that you would take a hold of our lives, Lord, and that you would make us into the people that you would have us to be from this point forward and continuing on, Lord. I pray, Father God, that you would just use us in a way that is glorifying to you, Lord, that you would point up to us things that we can change in our lives, Lord, and that you would just be the one that brings forgiveness and who gives us life abundantly today. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.